Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Rabina podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. In a world that is dominated by narratives of fear, anxiety, and worry, what does it mean that joy is not dependent on outward circumstances, but on the inner state of one's heart? You've joined us in our series, Philippians, where we are exploring what Paul meant when he wrote to have joy in everything and the importance of living in unity among believers for the sake of the gospel. We pray that this message is a blessing. If I've not met you before, my name is Michael. I'm part of the pastoral team here. I'm excited to be preaching this morning our last week in Philippians, our last week in Philippians. And it's, it's kind of been a journey for me this week as God has been sharing not only with something for us, but something for me as well. So would you join with me as we pray together today? Let's pray. Gracious God, wherever we are today, whether we're online or in the room, I pray that we would pause and wait upon a God who is gracious enough to speak to us. Lord, would you turn down the distractions of our world that we might become more receptive to what you're saying, what you're doing. (coughs) Jesus, we've all come from, from various things today, but draw us together in unity by your Son that we might be transformed for the good of the world and the glory of God. Less of me, more of you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Depending on how long you've been, in the church or in Christianity. This might be your first day today joining online or in the room. There could be this moment where you may have heard people say things and attribute things to the Bible that actually were never said in Scripture. I don't know if you've ever had this, but you might be talking to someone about something you're walking through and they'll say something like, well, as we all know, as it says in the Bible, uh, blah, blah. And the, the trick is that so often we don't follow up with the most important second question when someone says that is, where in the Bible does it say that exactly? Because there are things that we get told the Bible says that the Bible doesn't say. I've got some examples on the screen. For instance, that money, no, we'll go to the money, that money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. Did you know the Bible doesn't actually say this? Money is not the root of all evil. If you've got a $5 note in your wallet today, friends, that $5 note is not trying to kill you. It is not evil. But the Bible does say something. Does anyone know what the Bible does say? The love of money is the root of all evil. Friends, your cash isn't the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. Now, that's kind of, that is in the Bible, right? There's another one where money is the root of all evil. There's one that says uh, that people might be like, well, God works in mysterious ways. Do you know that this is nowhere in the Bible as well? Nowhere in the Bible does God justify His actions by going, I work in mysterious ways. And we use that as a way that we kind of like comfort people that are walking through really difficult things. We don't know what to say. And we're like, oh, your dog died. God works in mysterious ways, doesn't He? And it's just, it's not there, you know. One of my favourites is uh, this next one. God helps those. Hey, we all know in the Bible where it says, God helps those who help themselves. Scripture and verse, tell me where that comes from. It's not in there. And even more than that, this is antithetical to the Gospel. If God helped those who helped themselves, God wouldn't be helping half of you. Right? Why? Because the Gospel says this, God helps those who can't help themselves, who are hopeless and alone and lost and destitute. God doesn't go and find the lost sheep that was trying to find its way back home. He goes and finds the lost sheep that doesn't want to come home at all. 
That's what God does. God doesn't help those. My favourite is this. Um, our friends, you're walking through something hard. Okay, well, you know what it says in the Bible? God never gives you anything more than you can handle. Not in the Bible at all. Some of us use this too often when friends are walking through suffering. Well, you know, God doesn't give you anything you can't handle. Yes, He does. All the time. My life is filled with things that I can't handle. There's two of them at the moment. One name's Benna, the other one name is Archer. And I'm like, I can't handle you guys. If God only gave you things you could handle, you know what the problem would be? You wouldn't need God. If you could handle the situation, why would you call out for God? Why would you need Him? I think in my experience, God gives us or exposes us to things all the time that remind us how much we can't handle things on our own. The problem is, is that not only are there things that Christians walk around, these pithy sayings we've kind of like picked up from Eastern religions or, you know, some, you know, Dr. Phil talk show host kind of thing and, and think that it's a really good thing to attribute to Jesus. But the thing sometimes we do is we not only misquote the Bible, sometimes we misinterpret the Bible, don't we? And what ends up happening is that we put things in the Bible or we change Scriptures in the Bible to suit what we want it to say. And this is dangerous. It's actually the reason why we at New Life preach to the Bible, like two or three books of the Bible, a little bit a year. It's so that we don't just pull out verses that fit what we want to talk about, but we learn to read Scripture. We learn what's in it. It's why we're reading through the book of Philippians. And even so, we haven't even touched on all the verses in there. Because if we don't learn to do this, people will get away with anything. Someone could hop up the front and say in the book of Hezekiah, it says you've got to love your pastor and give him a car once a year. Friends, that's not in the book of Hezekiah. It's in the book of Proverbs. And people be wondering why you haven't done it yet. Also, it's not in the book of Proverbs. For those of you wondering, that was the joke. So please, that's, that's not what the Bible says. But we can sometimes, even the stuff Bible does say, misinterpret, can't we? Like this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Amen. Amen. It's a great one, right? But it can also be used to excuse some really bad behaviour. Like Michael in year 12 when he wouldn't study for an exam. Rock up that day for maths problem solving. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. No, that's not what that verse means. Sometimes I hear this verse quoted as if this verse means that God's gonna give you superhuman ability to do things that are impossible for humans to do. Well, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Here's what happens when we misinterpret the Bible. When we start applying this wantonly, it's like, hey, are you, are you gonna be able to make it through? Are you gonna be able to do this impossible task? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When we can't do all things, like walk on water, fly, we go, well, the Bible mustn't be true. Well, the, God lied to me in the Bible. I can't actually not study for my maths exam and pass. I can't do all things. And we miss out actually in the beauty and the truth of Scripture. So today is what we're going to do. We're going to step in to the Bible. We're going to start actually moving beyond nice ideas that we want Scripture to mean and ask God, what were you trying to communicate through your Apostle Paul when you said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength? Is that okay? Can we step in there? We're going to land the plane on Philippians today with a passage that this week has become one of my favourite passages in the Bible. It actually begins back in verse 10. And I preached beautifully last week about how God is our peace, even in moments of anxiety and worry. And then Paul shifts in this moment. And in verse 10, he actually launches into a new phase. But before we get to verse 10, I want to ask you a question that encapsulates today. And it's simply this. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? This is not a Russell Crowe gladiator moment. Are you not entertained? No, this is a moment where I'm, I'm wondering, are you content? Are you content in Jesus? 
Are you satisfied with what's going on in your life right now? Because this is what Paul wants to address. And in verse 10, he begins, he says this, I rejoiced greatly. He's writing to the Philippian church. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that you, the Philippians, finally renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, for those of you who may have come in late or you didn't catch every week, a couple of weeks ago, Fiona gave us this beautiful context for the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians was written to a church in Philippi by the Apostle Paul. And as Paul was writing, Paul wasn't sitting in a library or a home office somewhere going, I've got some thoughts to share with the church in Philippi. No, Paul was in prison. So as Paul is in prison, he's actually chained to a Roman guard, which means Paul wants to go to the toilet, the Roman guard comes with him. Paul needs to do anything, the Roman guard's right around. Paul's in a really difficult situation. He's in prison for preaching the Gospel. And in this moment, we get to the end of the letter and Paul says to the Philippians, you took care of me. You see what the Philippians had done? Because they heard that Paul was in prison for preaching the Gospel. For those of you who are unaware, there was a lot of alliteration in that sentence there, a lot of Ps, but we'll move right along. Because Paul was in prison for preaching the Gospel, there was this moment where he actually turns around and finds that they have given him financial assistance. They've sent him money. And he turns to them and what we read here is him saying, guys, thanks so much. I can't provide for myself. This means so much to me that you are sharing with me. Thank you. But want to let you know, I'm not, I'm doing okay. I'm content. I've learned to be content in every circumstance. Here he is in prison with a guard who comes with him every time he's got to pee or poo or, or eat or sleep, right? And Paul goes, I'm doing good. I'm content. Would you be content? Would you be content? What does it mean to be content? See, Paul seems to have hidden this, this secret that, that I want to get a hold of. What does it mean to be content? If you go to the dictionary, we find out that the word content means to be satisfied, that you're satisfied with your circumstances, you're satisfied with your lot in life. It's almost like the world would say that to be content is at the end of the day, you lean back and you go, ah, oh, this, this is the life. When was the last time you said that? You see, to be content as painted to this picture by a world, we think that to be satisfied, at least what the world tells us, is that we need more things. In fact, we struggle to be content so often in our day and age. Why? Because we're bombarded every single day by media, by social media learning algorithms about which thing to buy, which thing that they, we know that we want or clickbait or these news articles that induce us with fear. We live in a day and age where it's becoming impossible to be satisfied with our lot. And so the world has taught us there are two real ways to be content. The first way is materialism. The second way is minimalism. And, and what both approaches are trying to do is they're trying to deal with the nature of the human soul to desire what we do not have. And so the human soul desires what we do not have. And there is one a lot of thinking in the world that says, if you want to be content, then what you need is more things, more stuff. The narrative of the world is that to be content will be when you get that car, that house, that holiday house, that holiday, that pay packet, that kid, that relationship, that family dynamic. If you can acquire more, then you will be content. And some of you are like, oh, I don't know if that's true, but how many of us are just thinking, ah, oh, if I just got a little bit more money in my pay packet, ah, oh, if I just, if, if, if I could just fill in the blank, I would be happy. But what we find out at some stage is that it's a lie. 
In fact, Harvard Business School did a review of 4,000 millionaires back in 2018. And they asked these 4,000 millionaires, so these aren't people who just bought like a property before COVID and after COVID, now suddenly they've got a million dollars in assets. These are people who like, they are millionaires. It's like plural for them. And they asked them, how much more money would you as a millionaire need to be content? Only 13% of the 4,000 millionaires said, I'm good where I am. The majority all said, if I had two times more, 10 times more, 50 times more, then I would be content. In fact, research shows that after earning $75,000 a year, the correlation between how much you earn and your level of satisfaction drops off significantly. But we live this life like maybe if I just had one more passive income, I'd be good. And the lie actually tells us that we'd be satisfied, but what we find out and what Harvard Business School found out is the millionaires were satisfied as long as there was no one else that was richer. If they moved into a neighbourhood with $50 million, they were happy. But if they moved into a neighbourhood with $50 million and everyone else had $100 million, then they needed more. The world tells us that you'll be content if you acquire more, but what we find out is that we'll be content as long as we have more than that person. And so the materialism thing statistically actually has been proven. It doesn't seem to work out. But the other way that we chase contentedness in the world is the opposite. Well, if desiring more stuff is, is, is the antithesis of contention, then what we're going to do is I'm actually going to reduce the amount of stuff that I have. We go and we binge watching Marie Kondo and we're like, Kondo, I don't know how to say her last name. If you know Netflix, you'll know. We pick up our clothes that we've loved and we say, I love you. And then we throw them in the bin. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, You don't have to find out. I don't know if it's going to revolutionise your life. But this idea of like, I'm going to minimalise what I have. I'm going to wear one set of clothes and, 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 you know, just one coffee cup and and just have, I'm going to ride my bike everywhere. and I'll be content because I don't need much. I'm fine the way I am. And like, that's probably good. And I think it's a really healthy way to live. But I've often met people who are minimalists and they don't seem that happy unless they're telling me about how happy they are with their minimalist life. Like, oh, you got three pairs of shoes? I only have half a shoe. <clears throat> good for you, man. It's awesome. So good, right? And then there's a sense where I'm not sure. I, I may be wrong, but I don't think either answer gives us satisfaction. Does it? I don't think either answer gives us satisfaction. And actually Paul would argue, no, it doesn't. They aren't satisfied in either thing. And both in Paul's days were deficient. In verse 12, he goes on and says this, I know, I know what it's like to be in need. And I know what it's like to have plenty. Should be on the screen behind me. I know what it's like to have plenty. What's Paul saying? He's saying, guys, I know what it's like to be be wanting more things because I'm poor and I'm hungry. I'm in prison next to a guard who farts really badly all the time. And he goes, it's the first time I've ever said fart on stage, by the way. There's this other time where he goes, I also know what it's like to have a lot of things. And neither seemed to be the way forward. Neither seemed to help me out. Paul was in change in chains, being persecuted. He'd been beaten and theologians remind us that he's actually on his way to be executed. And Paul has the gall to be like, I'm all right. There are so many people here today who you've walked in and you're not content. There's sickness in your family. Your kids did not grow up the way you thought they would. Feel free to nudge them and wink at them right now if that would be appropriate. No, don't do that, that would be horrible. There's some of you here today that are walking through financial struggles. The, the cost of living reality is actually, it's here, right? 
Some of you, your marriage isn't here. Some of you, you aren't married and you wish you were. I think this room is filled with people struggling with discontent. And Paul seems to say you can be locked up in a prison, chained to a guard you have to pee and poo right next to and be satisfied. Is this just because Paul had really low standards of happiness? He goes on, he says this, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What's he saying? Whatever situations come my way, friends, guess what? I am content. So many of us, that's not our story. We're discontent. In fact, Don Kistler would say it like this, so many Christians are discontent because the person with the discontented heart often has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much and everything that God does for him is too little. But here's Paul, who hasn't been freed from prison from by God, who's planted churches all throughout the Middle East. And he's like, it's not that bad. Why? What is it that Paul knows that we don't know? What is it that Paul's gained the secret to? What, what is it about Paul's satisfaction? That he's not chasing materialism. He's not chasing minimalism. The other thing that Paul wasn't chasing as well was this idea of stoicness. And back, back in his day, the Greek uh, philosophy of, of stoic reality, the idea that if you go and face triumph and defeat, you face them both the same. A stoic person is quite resolute. They don't cry a lot. They're not emotional because they allow the situations of their life to form who they are. But Paul was actually not trying to promote a stoic way of approaching life either. No, Paul's answer wasn't stoic. Paul's answer wasn't materialism. Paul's answer wasn't minimalism. Do you want to know what he learned? Do you want to know what his secret was? Friends, that's where verse 13, why was Paul content? Because I know that in I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Picture this. Paul's writing this letter after being persecuted, after being beaten, after being forgotten, after some churches didn't even remember to send him help. And he's sitting there in prison next to the Roman guard and he writes this. And I can almost imagine he's picking up the chain in his hand and he's saying, I can do this. I can make it through this darkness. Why? Because of Christ Jesus who gives me strength. That is a resolute kind of faith that is rare in this day and age. Paul is saying, you want to know my secret? I have Jesus. They can beat me all they like. They can chain me to the smelliest guard in the world. They can even lead me to the execution block, but no one will take Jesus from me. Why was he satisfied in Christ? Because friends, this feels like a pithy Sunday school answer, doesn't it? What leads you to be content? Jesus, let's go home. Doesn't that feel nice? And if you've got any sense of you know, cognitive thought, you'd be like, no. What was it about Jesus that gave Him strength to do anything and everything that came across His path? I think it was two things, friends. I wrestled with God about this at 5am this morning. I'm like, God, something's not landing. Why was it that He was so satisfied in you? I think it's because the reality of Jesus meant two things. Number one, He was not alone in the middle of that darkness. In the middle of that moment, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus Christ was with him. And secondly, that was not the end of the story. Even if they took his life, the story doesn't end there. It takes a different level of faith, doesn't it? To sit next to a bed of a loved one whose body is racked with cancer, 
and to say, I can do this through Christ Jesus who brings me strength. It's a different level of faith, isn't it, when you get that financial report or that, that mortgage raise letter in the, in, in, the, in the mail and your heart is crushed. You're like, how are we going to, I can do this through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. It's a different level when you've been single for a while. I can do this through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. It's much more powerful for a verse than just a reminder you can pass a year 12 maths exam. Paul's answer was literally, I can do this because I have Jesus. St. Augustine of Hippo says it like this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. A mentor and hero of mine, Timothy Keller, passed away three weeks ago. So you're going to get a bit of Keller this morning. Timothy Keller says this, contentment is not the fulfilment of what you want, but the realisation of how much you have in Christ. James preached about this three weeks ago. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, what do we read? What is more, Paul writes, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul then goes, and we don't talk about this often, but he swears in Greek. I consider them, it's not actually garbage. That word garbage is actually a swear word. It's like, I consider them beep in comparison that I may gain Christ. The word more directly translated is, I consider them dung. What's Paul saying here? I've had it all. I've lost it all. And all I need is Jesus. That's all I need. And friends, I wonder if that's true for us. There are some of you sitting here today be like, ah, oh, Michael laughs pretty good. I'm content. This message is not for me. Cool. Let me just paint a picture. Your bank account empties tomorrow. Are you content? Your relationships fall apart. Are you content? You get sent to prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus. Are you going, oh, Michael laughs pretty good. I don't know about you. No, because if the answer is no, I wouldn't be content, then your satisfaction and contentment is based on your circumstance and your circumstance is shaky. Because there is no guarantee that the world tomorrow is going to be the same world we experience today. There's some of you here today who you're walking through a moment in your life and you are longing for things to change. And I've come to tell you that the God that we serve has an eternal perspective of your situation that as hard as it may be, He is offering. You can be satisfied in the valley, in the prison, next to the hospital bed, for I am with you and this is not the end of the story. You can do this through Christ who gives you strength. Friends, this is a powerful verse that we need to use more often to encourage each other to know that my satisfaction is not in my account, my relationships, my family, my job. It is in Christ Jesus and nothing can take that from me. Let me ask you simply today, are you content in Jesus? Or is it Jesus plus something? What I love about what Paul says is that Paul says, I learned to be content. I learned to be content. That's so encouraging, isn't it? Which means that some of you are going to walk out of here today and need to be honest. You are not content in Jesus, but you can choose. Hey, Jesus, teach me to be content in you. I asked permission to share this story, but a lady in our 7.30 a.m. volunteers celebration um, this morning, we, we had a lady share. She told us this story about how her marriage fell apart eight years ago. And every week, 
in the midst of her devastation, she found herself in church and made the appointment and she wouldn't miss it. She found herself down the back weeping in her brokenness needing Jesus. Learning that even in the brokenness of her relationship, she could find contentment in Him. Learning to be content isn't meaning that we don't cry, that we don't grieve, that we're not at times fractured at the edges. Learning to be content isn't this stoic reality like nothing can hurt me because I'm a Christian and I've got Jesus. It's when we bring our tears to the only one who can fulfill the satisfaction that our soul so longingly needs. Are you content in Jesus today or maybe do you need to learn? What I want to do just for the next moment is put a pause there. And sometimes when people are preaching, um, you know, there's this moment where everyone's with them. Let's assume that that's now. And then the preacher does something and it's like, you know, ruins the whole mood of the room. Let's also assume that's going to be now as well. Because the hard thing is, is that if you read this text, Paul asks us a great question about, are you satisfied in Christ? But it's actually not the main point of the whole text. If you read Philippians 4, verse 10 to 23, Paul's actually trying to talk about something else. This is just a side note for Paul. So I want to pause with that question, are you satisfied in Christ? I'm going to come back to it. I want to to just take a sidestep for a moment to address what else Paul was saying. Because you see, Paul is talking about being content because he's writing to the Philippian church who had sent him all this money. And he's saying to them, guys, thank you. Hey, I'm content. I'll make it through with Jesus. But thank you for your generosity. That's also awesome. And so for a minute, brace yourselves. I just want to talk about finances. I know that that's hard for some of us. We're like, oh, we always talk about money in church. I think at New Life, you'll find it's a different story. But we don't actually talk about that much. But Jesus did. One out of every 10 gospel stories was about money. 16 out of 38 of the parables was about money. And 15% of all Jesus' teaching was about money. So just for a moment, just come with me as we just step into finances. I've decided to soften the blow of what's about to happen by inviting the keyboarders to the platform (laughs) to just kind of play some. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And then the next thing he goes on, he says, yet it was good of you to share my troubles. How did the Philippians share his troubles? Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the Gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid for what, for what you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. What's Paul saying? He's blatantly saying they didn't send him prayers or they probably prayed, prayed for him. He's not saying, hey guys, thanks for giving me your time. He's just being bold. Hey guys, I was in prison. You sent me money. Thank you. But what does he say? I'm actually excited because it's going to be credited to your account. Now it's not an account in the Swiss Alps. He's saying that God notices you being generous towards the mission of the Gospel. There's, there's no two ways about that. It's like, I can't, I can't exegete that in any different way. He's just clearly saying, you gave money, thank you. God notices the generosity of what you've done. And I say this because Paul is actually raising this thing that we don't talk about much, but the need and importance of what a guy named John Reinhardt calls gospel patrons. And gospel patron, the definition will be on the screen, is this, someone who is invested and involved in another person's ministry to help proclaim the gospel. What do these guys do? They go, well, Paul needs help. What's he doing? He's preaching the Gospel in a Roman prison. What are we going to do? 
Let's get, let's get behind that. And I want to pause for a moment just to, to ask in our life and in our way, what are our finances being invested in? You see, everyone is using their money in their world to build a kingdom, someone's kingdom, either their own kingdom or God's. And, and the truth is, in my experience, you invest your treasure, be on the screen, you invest your treasure in what is most valuable to the kingdom you are building, the narrative you are inhabiting and the master that you are serving. And you know, there's this moment at the end of this part of the, the, the Paul's thing where he turns around to them and he says, the sacrifice of your generosity is aroma pleasing to God. Friends, we don't talk about money often at New Life. So I just want to pause here and just say, there's something that Paul's highlighting to hear that the gospel is forwarded in his time because people were financially generous to it. People were gospel patrons. They said, hey, we're not doing this because we have to. We're doing this because we believe in it. So here's, here's the rub. Here's how I want us to apply this for us here at New Life Rabina. Brace yourself. This is all I want to say. Thank you. Thank you. On June 15th, you'll, we'll have our AGM and you'll find out that our church, um, we've been giving over and above what we budgeted for this year. That people in this church believe in the gospel and believe in what this church is doing with the gospel and so you've sacrificially given. There's no bucket that's about to come around. I just wanted to say thank you. Statistically, we are giving more money to the forwarding of the gospel in this church than ever in our history. That is good. I remember the story when we planted New Life Cool and Gatta and a lady came along and said to Scott, hey, I've got an industry standard coffee machine I want to give you for free so that you might be able to make coffee for non-Christians and forward the gospel. And now they're doing this great coffee down at the coffee shop down there. Why? Because there was a gospel patron who goes, I could sell this for my benefit or I could give it to the gospel. I remember last year we're doing Alpha and Calvin comes and says to me that they're doing this watered down cordial thing, which tasted horrible apparently. And this guy comes along and is like, why are we serving non-Christians cordial? We should be hospitable. And we're like, well, we just don't have the budget. He said, budget smudge it. I'm paying for it myself. Get out the Solo and the Coke. We're serving them the best. Right? Some of you are like, oh, Solo and Coke could have gone a bit more. We're at church. Like that's pretty good for us, right? Why? Because one guy comes along and is like, here, let's go. You know, everyone, well, grab your hand and put it on the seat that you're sitting on. Not your butt, your hand. Touch the seat. Some of you still haven't moved. Now, if you're not at home, picture it. In fact, why don't you touch the screen? Because at, when you touch that screen, when you're touching that seat, you're able to join us today online because someone came along to New Life and said, I want to give money so we reach people who can't make it to church when they got the flu or people in Japan or London. You're here today because 10 years ago, our church said, what if we could build more room for someone to come we've not met yet? And so we all paid for a seat for those who are to come. Friends, our church exists because of gospel patrons. And I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for being generous. Thank you for taking this seriously. Because here's what I know. There's still more to come. There's still more to do. There are people that don't yet know Jesus and we're gonna need every single person that calls Jesus Christ their Lord and Saviour to partner with us as we see more churches planted, more seats filled and more solo given out instead of cordial at Alpha. Amen. That was laughter. That wasn't an amen. Amen. So friends, there's no big ask on the end of this other than to say, 
This church will always need gospel patrons. You know, someone once said to me, Michael, never tell people we're doing well financially as a church. They'll stop giving. I'm like, that's not why we give. We don't give because there's a need. We give because there's a mission. And I pray you would join us. Here's what I do know. You know the fastest way to sap contentment in your life? Money. Money. Every time Sarah and I talk about our giving and what we're doing with it and how much we're giving to church on a regular basis, we're like, ah, oh, we, could, we could save that. And I just remember, what, what is the lie I'm thinking? If I kept that for me, I'd be happier. And friends, the truth is, is that I actually know one of the greatest fruits of the gospel of people being content in Jesus is generosity. Because see, what Paul goes on to say here, what he's trying to address is this idea of the world is selling you a lie that it can give you satisfaction, but only Jesus can do that. Timothy Keller has this great story where he reminds us, do you remember that time when you're young and you're having lollies before dinner and your mum says to you, don't ruin your... Let's go again. Don't ruin your... In the 8am service, someone's like, your hair. I'm like, what the heck was happening in your house growing up, man? Why does she say that? Because if you fill yourself up on sugar, you're not going to want to eat what your body needs. You want to be on a sugar buzz and you want to miss out on the proteins and the vitamins and the minerals your body needs, right? Now, we do this in our life. We fill ourselves up on the sugar of the world, on sex, on money, on power, on relationships, on status, on social media. And the sugar buzz comes and we're like, this is the best. But just like with a toddler, the sugar buzz wears off, doesn't it? And just like a toddler, we throw a tantrum. How dare you, Jesus, take that away. I'm not okay. And Jesus is like, that's because you found your satisfaction in something that was never, ever gonna last. Find it in me. So I finished today on this thought that maybe there's some of us here today, the reason why we're not satisfied in Christ is what Jesus told me about my life this week. It's because Jesus is no longer beautiful for you. He's no longer enough. At some stage, it became Jesus plus money, Jesus plus a relationship, Jesus plus a house, Jesus plus, Jesus plus. Jesus, Jesus like, nah, it's, it's me. Trust me. Everything else fades. Is Jesus enough for you today? Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads. For those of us who are joining online right now, we have Lucy, our host team, who'd love to pray with you if you would love any prayer. But for those of you who are in the room, maybe you're here today and you've, you've pursued the lie of the world that materialism or minimalism, that word, minimalism, will lead you to satisfaction and it hasn't worked. Jesus says to you, I am all you need. Doesn't mean you won't wind up in prison chained to a Roman guard, but it means you won't be in want while you do. Doesn't mean that sickness and pain won't come to your world, but it means that you will not be alone and you'll know it's not the end of the story. Friends, there are some of you here today that need to know the contentment that only Jesus can offer. If that's you and you've never chosen Jesus to fill your life and satisfy your soul, Right now in this moment, I'd love to pray for you. Wherever you are, would you just raise your hand right now? I'd love to pray for you. If you'd love to respond. Thank you. I see your hand. That's awesome. Thank you. I see your hand. That's awesome. If you're online, you can be responding. Lucy will give you directions. There should be a button you can click. Or if you aren't on the chat, just raise your hand where you are. Friends, we've got a couple of people that have responded today, so we're going to pray for them. 
We're going to pray a prayer we always pray together in response to this. Would you pray these words with me out loud, everyone in the room? Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for pursuing the world. Fill my heart. Satisfy my hunger. Thank You for dying for me, for forgiving me and offering me new life. I choose to follow You. In Jesus' Name, Amen. Friends, if you raise your hand today, after the service, a section leader is going to come chat with you and just give you a Bible. If you're online, someone would love to pray and chat for you right now. But with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to ask one more thing. There are some of you in this room today who are walking through a situation and it's sapping you of satisfaction. It's hard. And the thought of your life is, how could I be satisfied walking through what I am right now? And I just got to tell you, Jesus wants to give you a fresh revelation of His goodness of His sufficiency. If you're here today and you're walking through something that you need, like the Philippians did for Paul, people to stand with you and remind you that Christ is with you. He is for you. He has not left you. If you've lost the beauty of Christ in the middle of what you're walking through, I wonder, I'd love to pray for you. Would you stand wherever you are right now? Would you stand? Would you stand? Friends, there's no one standing. So I'm going to ask you to head bowed, eyes closed. I was convicted on this this week. I believe that this isn't two people. This is actually going to be a lot of us. That Jesus is not enough for us right now. And we need to come back to Him and repent and ask Him to be enough. Wherever you are right now, if that's you, if you've lost the beauty of Christ, would you stand wherever you are? I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you. Thank you for standing. Thank you for standing. Thank you for standing. Thank you for standing. Thank you, Jesus. Friends, for those standing, I stand with you today. I realised this week I've lost it. So if you're sitting next to someone standing, can you stand with them and just put a hand on their shoulder and just say, hey, you're not alone. You're not alone. Jesus, right now, for people online as well who are responding in prayer to Lucy, I pray for us all. Father, You would give us a fresh revelation of Your mercy and Your goodness and Your beauty. May we come again and know You are good. I pray for that person who is in a hopeless situation. May they hold on to the chains around their ankles and say, I can do this through Christ who gives me strength. For that person who got a medical diagnosis that was unwanted, I can do this through Christ who gives me strength. You are enough. You are enough. In Jesus' Name. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.